coming and worshiping together with us. One of the things we're going to be talking about today from the book of Galatians, which is all about freedom, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. What we're going to talk about this morning can have an eternal impact on your life and the lives of people we know and we love. Now, there's a lot of messages that we give, and they have impact in terms of some of the temporal things of today. We want a quality marriage. We don't want to be depressed. We want to feel like we're significant. We want to have purpose in life. We want to have a good job. Those are all important as well. But this morning, what we're going to talk about has eternal consequences. If we get wrong what we're talking about today, it could change our eternal destiny and those of people we love and care about. So, not to over-dramatize it, but I want to let you know, this is critical, this is core, this is fundamental that we're going to address this morning as we deal in the book of Galatians, and it's all about deserting the freedom. Let me read the text that we have. We're going through the book of uh, Galatians. You have an outline that is exactly like this one here, if you'd like to open that up. It kind of helps to follow along. We're in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 10. Let me read the text. The Apostle Paul writes to us, as he wrote to the Galatians, an area today we know of as the Turkey area, and he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, that would be Jesus, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul doesn't pull anything back on this. And then he repeats it again. He says in verse 9, As we have said before, so I say again. He says, I don't want you to get this wrong. So he says, If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. That's heavy-duty language. It's not very inspiring to those that probably don't know what he's talking about. But then he goes on and concludes in this way. Four, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? Of course he is not. He wouldn't have said what he just said if he's trying to please people. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So as we go through the book of Galatians... We wanted to understand what the gospel of freedom does and the impact upon our lives. One of the things that struck me about the contrast from last week to this week, because this book is just continuous, we just happen to take portions of it and drill down in that area. But if you go back to verse 4, here's the apostle saying this, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us or rescue us out of this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. What strikes me is the contrast. In verse 4, he rescued you from this present evil age. In verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting that. Why would you desert what you rescued? Let me, let me just use a little personal, uh, simple illustration to help drive the point home. I want to show you a picture of a dog that we have. We are like foster parents to this dog. This dog's name is Lucy. She is a mutt. She was rescued by my niece, my sister's daughter. 
My niece Alexis came to live with us for a couple of years recently, and uh, so we took her into our home. What we didn't know is that along with Alexis was Lucy. And so uh, Lucy's a little bit yappy for my liking, and uh, Alexis has now moved on. She lives uh, in the L.A. area, but we still have Lucy. So we're learning, we're learning to love Lucy. Uh, but what's unique about Lucy is this, that Alexis, she's got this real tender heart for sort of the downtrodden, for the, for the least of these, that kind of a situation. So she loves to come to the aid of other people. And she went to the pound and she picked out Lucy because Lucy was a rescue dog. So she rescued Lucy from the street life that she had lived. Now Lucy, when she rescued her, she had a hundred ticks on her body. And she was all matted, her hair was all, you know, tied together in knots, having grown out, having never been trimmed. She's lost half the teeth of her mouth. So this side she has no teeth on. So that means I have to chew her food and, and spit it out so she can... <laughs> no, someone said I should say that. I would never do that. She'd starve to death before I'd do that. But she only has... I'm just, just kidding. Sort of. And so, ha- so she only has half the teeth. And so it's really weird to watch her chew on some of the chewies we give her and gum the other part. Anyways, so that's, that's Lucy. You notice that she is <clears throat> sleeping on our living room leather couch. And you notice that the couch is not enough. If you look closely, you'll see that she's actually on a pillow on the couch. The couch is not soft enough. She needs a pillow. And she and her other dog... Our Scottish Terrier will sometimes do battle as to who gets the pillow. And you notice around Lucy, in front of her, is this little toy that she loves to squeak and, and chew on. And, and then above her, you'll notice that there is a slipper, and that's Joy's slipper, my wife. And so when we come home, when we go home after church here today, she will bring one of those items to us, and she will carry it in her mouth, and she'll just squeal and be so happy that we have come home, and she'll give us one of those gifts. She's taking my shoes, she's taking my slippers, she brings anything she can find in our bedroom, brings it down to us, and we're constantly having to put it back. The beautiful thing about Lucy is that she can lay there on that couch, and she's right now having a wonderful nap, probably on our bed in our bedroom. And she'll lay out there outside in the patio on the sun and just sort of sunbathe for a while. Then she'll go over to the grass and she'll do her business. And then I'll clean up her business for her. And then she'll be hungry and I will provide her food at no charge. And then I'll provide her water at no charge. And I'll give her treats at no charge. She doesn't pay for a thing. She has everything totally free. She is living in doggy heaven. There's nothing nicer than our home for Lucy. Compare that to where she used to live on the streets. Somebody punched her teeth out. Ticks, fleas, matted hair. She had been violated because she had just given birth to puppies. So somebody, dog, violated her. And then took her in to our home. Now, imagine this. Can you think ever that Lucy, if given the choice, Lucy... Would you like to go out on the street again and live there and fend for yourself? Or would you like to stay here where Dave does everything he can to take care of you and it's all free of charge? Now, what do you think she would vote? How many think she wants to go back out on the street? Okay, I'll take that as a unanimous vote that everybody wants her to stay in our home. Paul 
Now, let me transition to more significant things. Paul is writing to the Galatians. Paul is disturbed and amazed that there are actually people who have been brought into the family of God, that actually have experienced and tasted the grace of Christ, that they know what it's like to have all the fullness of all that God would offer to someone who becomes their child, adopted into their family. And he says, man, you're deserting the Jesus that has rescued you from this present evil age, and you're wanting to go back to it? I can't believe that you would do that. And it troubles him. It troubles God. It should trouble our souls. That there are those who come to believe and say they follow Jesus having been rescued from this present evil age. And then they would go back to that for another gospel, for another belief system. It's tragic. And just why I thought about Lucy, I thought, there's no way she would want to go back to that. And she's got more smarts than some of these people that he's talking to in Galatia who have gone back, who have left the grace of Christ, who have acquired something else to believe in that is going to be so disturbing to their lives. So that's where we want to go. We've been rescued. We want to stay in that rescued form and never go back. And these are the things we need to understand. We need to understand the problem of deserting Jesus who rescued us. And there are those who do that. I've got friends, I've got family members who do that. Probably you do too as well. Here's what Paul writes. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You've inserted a new gospel in the place of the gospel that I gave to you. And when you do that, you're, you're deserting the grace of Christ. You're turning your back on the very one who loves you, provides for you, cares for you, does it all free of charge. Why would you leave that? And so what has happened is it's created this sense of uncertainty in the believers that are there. And the last thing God wants is uncertainty, change, he doesn't like us to go through those things because it becomes unsettling to us. And so I want to talk about the unsettled uncertainty of those people, but I want to talk a little bit about us for a moment, if you will, as well. I've been here for 21 years now. And one of the things that we who are on staff need to know is, as the, the scriptures say, we need to know the, the state of our flock. And I know that there's been some changes that you have seen up here on the platform. We're blessed to have, uh, and I call them the younger pastors, and uh, uh, because they're young enough, like whether it's Doan or Davis or Eric or Doug. Doug's really young compared to Doan, for example. <laughs> compared to me, compared to me, it's like you know, it's light years difference because I'm so old. Uh, because a lot of these, I could be, I'm old enough to be their father, so I, I think about myself in, in that way, and I, like I'm a whole another generation or two away. The reality is this. We're going through some changes for the purpose of transition, for the purpose of succession, for the purpose of by the age of 100 as a church being the best church God would want us to be. We can't be like church Y or XZ, but we want to be the church that God wants us to be. And so we are 85 years old as a church at wage 100 
My passion for Calvary is that we are strong and vital and growing and having an impact on our community and around our world. Well, right now, I have been thinking about and praying about what should we be doing to help us position ourselves in terms of the leadership that's going to make that happen. And so that's why you've seen some changes up here. And we change, we have pulpit team here. I'm so appreciative of the other guys that share in this time of preaching. But we also have seen some changes up front here in terms of worship. And I know one of the vital things that a lot of us want are passionate, vibrant, um, exciting adoration of the name of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that Paul's going to talk about here, he says, I don't want to change anything of the core of who we are, the gospel of Jesus. And I don't want anything to change the core of who we are at Calvary. But we're in the process of trying to discover from the Lord who would be those next leaders who would have my position as senior pastor or lead pastor, and who would have the position of leading us in worship. We're actively seeking someone who would be that next worship leader that would help us and lead us for the next 15 years. So we're in that journey right now. We've had contact. We've had Justin up here. Some of you saw Justin last week. He does a terrific job. He's a young man that uh, I've gotten to know, and actually he was part of my home church at Bethany Bible Church. My dad was pastor there for 30 years. I knew his grandparents at Bethany. And so he comes out of this wonderful heritage of having led Bethany through a time of transition and change. And so that's why we thought he would be a good and helpful uh, sort of a consultant to come in and help us think about who we are and where we want to go in our worship. He won't be the next full-time pastor. He says he's not interested in that, but he loves to come alongside. And so you'll see him periodically. But he comes in to help us. But we're seeking someone who will become that overriding worship leader that leads us into the presence of God with a passion for the name of Jesus without changing any of the values of who we are, without changing the biblical emphasis of what we teach and what we preach, without changing or modifying the desire that we reach our community and the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. But we want leadership that will help us go there. So I thought, what better way than to begin to plan, to pray, to prepare for who they will be and when that change will occur. So you've seen some of those areas where we're sort of in the discovery process of transition. We don't know the who and we don't know the timing, but we know the God that's in charge. So we're seeking him. So I want to invite you to pray with us as to what that would look like. Now Ron's doing a great job. I love Ron. Ron and I have been working together for 20 years. And uh, Ron and I aren't planning to go anywhere, but we're planning to be a champion and support and do all that we can for those next leaders to be successful in bringing us to the throne of Jesus Christ, that we too can experience the grace of Christ and that generations that follow us can likewise experience the grace of Christ. So it's not easy. It's a big change for me, personally. But most importantly, what is the change going to look like for Calvary? So would you pray with us? Our elders are godly men. They're working on it. We've considered and consulted with outside leadership as well. So we're working hard on this. So I ask for your, your trust, but also ask for your prayers as we move ahead without changing any of the values of who we are.
because we're never going to go off to a different gospel. Well, Paul says, I want to unite everybody else into this gospel as well. So we need to understand this. So family time is done. Let's get back to the Galatians theme of that hour because this is core to us and who we are. The problem is that some people are leaving the grace of Jesus Christ. They're trying to bring and import into this relationship with God something that God says, I never want you to do that. I don't want you to live with the burden of what you're trying to do. I don't want you to live the consequences of what you're trying to do. So he says, I don't want you to take another gospel and insert it in. So in order to understand the other gospel that we'll talk about, let me talk about what the true gospel is. If you don't know what the true gospel is, you're easily misled into another gospel. Here's the passage that is the go-to passage for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. If you think, wow, God, what is the gospel? You instinctively should go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 because this is what Paul writes. Paul writes this. This is so core to us. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. The Corinthian people are saying, what's the gospel, Paul? Let me make it known to you. I've already told you, but I will tell you again. Because he says, this is the gospel. I have preached it to you. You have received it in which you now stand. And he says, it's the gospel by which you are saved. If you don't know the gospel, how can you be saved? The gospel saves people. So what is the gospel? He continues on. You need to hold fast to the word, that which is the gospel. That which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So then he says, let me get specific, and this is the thing I want us to take home with us today. This is the true gospel. If you don't get this, how can you be saved? Paul writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance. There is nothing more important than this. More important than who's the senior pastor, more important than who's the worship pastor, more important to anything that we do here is this truth. That is that which I received, that number one, and I want to highlight the three elements of it, that number one, Christ died for our sins. We're all sinners and Jesus died for me in my place so I could be forgiven. According to the scriptures that they had prophesied that. Secondly, he was buried. He didn't just sort of faint on the cross because it was so hard and painful. He died. He died the way you and I will die someday. And then thirdly, he was raised from the dead on the third day. According to the scriptures, God had said, this is my plan. This has always been my plan. This is not a change in plans. It's not a failure of plans. It has been the plan. The plan of scriptures is that number one, Jesus is to die for my sins. Number two, buried. Number three, rose from the grave on the third day because he conquered death and my death has been conquered by him. Victory in Christ. That's the gospel. It's nothing more, it's nothing less. You can't take away from it, you can't add to it. There is no other gospel, there is no different gospel, there is only one true gospel, and unless you believe the true gospel, you can't be saved. So it's that simple. Paul said that, and we believe it. And it's been proven over and over with people, time and again, for 2,000 years. So now, that's the true gospel. The problem is that there are some people that want to come alongside us and sort of distort it up. I'll give you some illustrations of that, but here is the contrast of what happens. The true gospel, it's the work of Christ for me alone. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. The false gospel, it's something I do. It's some effort I make. And it may be a good effort, it may be well-intended, but it is a false gospel. 
The true gospel is all about the grace of Christ because grace is given to me what I don't deserve. I didn't deserve to be saved. I didn't deserve to be forgiven. My sins are so bad in the sight of God that he could have just cast me off into hell. But he says, Dave, I'm going to give to you what you don't deserve. My grace. Freedom. Freedom from sin. The problem is some people, and I still tend to do this, I think I can earn God's favor by just being good. I have this sort of conditional love from God. That's in my mind. That God, when I really obey you and do well, I figure you're going to really bless me. God says, Dave, I don't need for you to do really well for me to bless you. I want to bless you no matter what because that's called grace. My daughters can never, ever make me love them more by anything they do or don't do, by any wrong thing they do or any good thing they do. My love for them never changes. When I think about that, I think about the fact that God loves me the same way. He is a father. And there's nothing I can do to make him love me more. There's nothing I can do to make him, make him love me less. So don't, for me, insert anything else extra beyond the gospel of freedom. And that is the grace of Christ. So here is the challenge. I need to understand the results of when I get that wrong, when I live based upon my works as opposed to God's grace, then I'm running, running headstrong into some problems. Paul says in Galatians 1.7 this, There are some of you, because they have another gospel that they're inserting into these people's belief systems, because there are some of you who are disturbing you and number two are distorting. I highlight in the yellow these two key words I want to talk about. Disturbing us, distorting the truth. This is what happens to people. Now let me, let me just sort of flesh it out a little bit. Imagine for a moment, and I for the life of me can never imagine myself doing this, I would never jump out of an airplane. But imagine you're in an airplane, you're 10,000 feet high, first time to parachute. You got a parachute on your back. And you're sitting next to the guy in the, in the helmet with the face on mask, and he is your trainer. So as you reach altitude, ready to jump, you turn to the trainer, the guy that has helped you out, and you ask him a question. You ask him this. Did you pack my parachute? Yeah. Did you do a good job? Well, I did the best I could. I think I did pretty well. I did my best. And then you say, well, can you guarantee me beyond any shadow of a doubt that you know that after I jump and I pull that cord, that's going to come out and it's going to glide me safely to the ground. Can you tell me beyond any shadow of a doubt with full confidence that you know I will be spared from splattering on this earth? And he turns back to you and says, well, I sure hope so. Let's keep our fingers crossed, okay? Would you jump out of an airplane if that's what your, pilot, that's what your trainer said? I did my best. I sure hope you... I hope it works. I don't know. I hope it works. 50-50 maybe? I would never jump out of an airplane like that. And yet think about it. Sometimes we're disturbed because there are people that treat salvation that way. For example, I don't know how many times I've talked to people, and you ask them this question. If you were to die today, 
do you know that you would go to heaven immediately? And people respond, oh, I've, I've done my best. I sure hope so. You ever had many? I've had a lot of people say that. Say, so would you like to know that you can go to heaven and have confidence that you, when you die you'll go to heaven? Oh, no one could ever know that. It's sort of like the trainer in the parachute. I did my best. I hope it opens up. But if it doesn't, oh well. Well, who wants to live life that way, not knowing that when the day you die, you'll go to heaven? Why would you want to live a life of a God who says, well, do your best, Dave, and if you're good enough, I'll get you in, but if you're not, I'm cutting you out. Who'd want to live with a God like that? And yet there are people around the world who live with that image of God, that somehow my efforts are necessary to gain his heavenly home. So what a tragic way to live. That's terribly disturbing. Terribly disturbing. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to be disturbed. And the disturbing things are these. You take that word that he used, I don't want people to disturb you. It means this idea of grief or loss of pain. If you look at that Greek word that he used there, it's used by Jesus. When Jesus was at Lazarus' grave and he's talking to Lazarus' sister. Lazarus is dead. He's been in the grave for four days. And it says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, the sister and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he also was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. This sense of being disturbed because I don't know whether God's going to love me enough to keep me and care for me and get me to his heavenly home. I don't know. That troubles me. It's like grief. I'm constantly day after day wondering, do I still have God's love on my life? That's a terrible way to live life. It's used also in uh, fear and abandonment by Jesus in John 14, 27, when he said this, peace I live with you, my peace. I want you to have a peaceful life. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. I don't want to live with fear that I don't know whether God's caring for me, guiding me, getting me through this moment in life, getting me through these challenges, through these situations, through these health problems, and my eternal destiny. If I die today, I don't want to have to wonder, will I get to heaven? Will God still love me and care for me? Who wants a God like that? Paul doesn't. I don't. And most of us don't either. We don't want to live with this fear of, oh God, you're going to crush me. I wasn't good enough. I didn't do that very well. You must be so sad. You must be so disappointed. I, I'm sorry I'm constantly disappointing you. Let me do better next time, and, and maybe I can improve. And, and then maybe you really, really, really love me. Who wants a God like that? I don't. That's not the God that we worship. And then there are those who have doubts. This word for disturbed is also translated as doubts in Luke 24. Jesus is resurrected. He is in his brand new resurrected body like we will someday have. And he says to a couple of guys, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like I do. God does not want one of us who come to church, who worship God, try to be basically good, he didn't want any of us to ever doubt his love and his eternal destiny that he has secured on our behalf. Don't ever have the sense of doubt. Because when there is doubt, it means that my salvation is based upon something I do to gain the favor of God. And the book of Galatians is totally opposed to that. 
because my salvation is built only upon the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. Remember what the gospel is. The true gospel doesn't say a word about something I need to do to gain eternal life. My faith alone in the death of Christ for my sins, the burial of Christ because of my sins, because he died, and the resurrection of Christ in the third day. My faith in that alone is sufficient. That's the gospel. Don't add to it. Well, there are people who are adding to it. Now, let me give you a couple of illustrations. And I don't mean to malign anybody in a person because God loves every single person in this world no matter what they believe about these things. And our love extends to the same people as well. But we need to understand that there are those that are trying to distort and then disturb and then control people's lives. For example, one of the things I looked up on the website for Mormonism, with all due respect to all the folks who are part of that religion, they say on their website that, in contrast, salvation from hell is also a wondrous gift from Jesus, but it is not automatic. It's not automatic. It involves meeting specific requirements. Specific requirements. Things I must do that Jesus established and his apostles carefully taught. You need to be baptized, for example, they say, by an authorized person, by immersion. If that's not how you've done it, you don't meet the requirements. They also say this. According to Peter, even an authorized baptism by immersion did not land, did not complete the requirement for salvation. So being baptized by an authorized person by immersion still doesn't make it happen, salvation. For one must also receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by proper authorities, as the proper authorities lay their hands on you. And even after receiving a proper authorized baptism followed by an authorized bestowal of the gift of the Holy Ghost, is a Christian saved? No, not yet. For according to Jesus only. In other words, the preparatory commandments of repentance and baptism receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost are the beginning steps on the road to salvation. I get lost. So, so when, when am I saved? Was I baptized by authorized people? Was that good enough? Was, did I, what if my head didn't quite get all the way? I, I don't know. All these things begin to disturb my heart because I don't know whether I'm in with God. Jehovah Witnesses also believe they have to be baptized. We have people here at Calvary Church and the previous churches that I've been part of who believe that as well. I don't know how many times I've asked people, tell me about your salvation experience. When did you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior? And people will begin with this. And I mean no offense to anybody, but I want the truth to get out. And they will say, tell me about your salvation. They will say, well, I was baptized when I was about 12. I didn't ask what you did. I asked, when did God do it for you? And people will talk about, well, I was baptized as an infant. I joined the church when? I took my first communion here. I went through this class. No. No. Now, I'm talking the ABCs. Those are good things. But that's another gospel. That's an alternative gospel of adding works 
to what Jesus has accomplished. Even raising your hand at a crusade, walking the aisle to come forward, sometimes are confused as behaviors that now God smiles on me and wants me to be saved. Those are okay things, but they are just elements of works, not faith. I invite us into this new true gospel that Paul gave to the Galatians and for 2,000 years has been preached, that we immerse ourselves in only the true gospel. Because what happens if I think I did this or I did that, then somewhere doubts are going to come into my mind. I think, well, did I really get saved? Was that really good enough? Did it really stick? Did I lose it? Because I don't feel the way I felt when I did the first thing of coming to faith. I feel very differently today. Maybe I've lost the salvation. That's not our God. The true gospel saves us and saves us forever because Jesus didn't stop dying. He didn't stop coming out of the grave. If he didn't stop coming out of the grave for us and he's out of the grave and it's a permanent thing, then my deliverance from death is a permanent thing as well. I want to invite you into that life because we're not here to be perfected by the flesh. Sometimes I live by a checkbox Christianity. This is my legalism. Oh, every day, God, I've got to pray. Every day, check. I've got to read your word. If I don't read the word, I'll probably have a terrible day. And then I need to meditate and really make that personal for me. Have I done that? Okay, I've done that. Check. I need to go to church at least once a week. Because I want God to love me and think I really do. I want him to know I care about him. And then finally, I need to journal really deep thoughts. So that when I die, someone reads it, they'll say, wow, Dave was really deep. Let's write a book on what I I want it to be so impressive. I want God to be so impressed with the thoughts that I had that he gave to me. He said, oh, Dave is one of my special children. It's craziness. That's checkbox Christianity. I've checked all the boxes for you, God. Today ought to be a great day because I've checked all the boxes for you. Now I'm going to go do my own thing. No, that's a false gospel. I live in the gospel of his grace that gives me freedom from that kind of legalistic effort to somehow gain his favor. Now, I want you to really experience this in a fuller way. I've invited Matt Doan to come on up here, and I appreciate Matt and his good ministry with us, and he's got some great things to share that are along the same lines. Let's welcome Matt to the big platform up here. Matt. Dave, you said you feel like a father to a lot of us younger pastors. Can I call you dad? Is that okay <laughs> yeah. from now? I'm old enough, that's okay. for sure. <laughs> um, hey, continue through Galatians here. We've already read it once, but I wanted to point it out again. In Galatians 1.8, it says, But if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. And then as Dave pointed out in verse 9, that's repeated again. It says, he is to be accursed. That word accursed in the original language that Paul wrote this in. It means to be cut off, to be removed. The PG version is, it means to be damned. And so Paul is using pretty extreme language here to saying, anyone that preaches a gospel that's contrary to the one that produces freedom is to be damned. I know for me personally, standing up here, that makes me like shake in my shoes. Thinking through, Lord, help me never to say anything that's contrary to the freedom that you give us in Jesus Christ. 
And then Paul says, if it's, it's, if it's myself or it's anybody else, or it's an angel that preaches this contrary gospel, he is to be damned. And the word angel is interesting to me because Satan really isn't very inventive. He uses the same tactics generation after generation after generation. And Satan has used particularly angels to communicate a false gospel and to lead people astray. If you're in Galatians 1, just flip one page over backwards into 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14, also written by the Apostle Paul, it says this in 11.14, No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. If you look through history, this has happened over and over again. In the 7th century, there was a guy named Muhammad. Muhammad was on a spiritual quest, a journey. Muhammad couldn't read or write, but he was married to a very wealthy woman who allowed him to take kind of escapes into the desert. And so he went into this cave one day, and it was in this cave that Muhammad claims to have seen an angel. He writes about this, or it's written, recorded in the Quran in chapter 53. Where it says, for he appeared in stately form while he was in the highest part of the horizon. Then he, the angel, approached and came closer. Muhammad then describes in Surah chapter 96 of the Quran that they wrestled together until the angel communicated to Muhammad what he wanted him to hear. Muhammad left that cave, went to his wife and to his wife's uncle, and between the three of them, They began to come up with this idea, this philosophy that turned into what we now know as Islam. A religion that is anything but free. It it promotes a, a gospel that says, yeah, Jesus was a prophet, but Jesus was not God. And Jesus went up to the cross, yes, but Jesus then was replaced on the cross by Satan himself. And so Jesus never died for our sins and certainly never rose again as the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. It's a false gospel that Muhammad was taught or exposed to through an angel of light. So that was in the 7th century, right? In the 19th century, a guy named Joseph Smith also takes a very similar path and journey to Muhammad. He goes off into the wilderness because he just wants to have his sins forgiven. He's searching for the gospel, for freedom. And he goes into the woods, and it's out in the woods as he's praying all night, asking for the forgiveness of his sins, that he claims that an angel appears to him and tells him there's no religion on earth that uh, is, is teaching the truth, that this angel now wants to reveal to Joseph Smith the actual truth. And so this truth, as you read about, and Dave just talked about the doctrine of Mormonism, of the LDS church, is a gospel that says Jesus is not enough. That Jesus, yeah, Jesus is God, but Jesus only heals you and forgives you of your personal sins. Jesus wasn't enough on the cross to heal you from your inherited sin from Adam and Eve. And so it's a halfway forgiveness from Christ. Interesting that Muhammad and Joseph Smith both saw an angel, both come up with gospels that are contrary to the one that we read about here in Galatians. So there's a couple options for us. One option is be like, stinks for you. (laughs) Good luck. Have fun being accursed. 
or we can develop a heart and a burden for Mormons, for Muslims in our Orange County world and around the world who are following the gospel not of freedom but of bondage. In the past week, Neil Parr, raise your hand, Neil. Neil's right there. Neil and I and a couple others had the opportunity to go to Albania to visit our sister church. We had an amazing time. In fact, just a week ago today, Neil and I had the opportunity to preach in Way of Peace Church. And Pastor Birdie, some of you have been there. Have you been there? Let me hear. Anyone been there? Okay, there's two of us. That's great. Three. Neil, you didn't even say anything. I'm surprised. But, um, so a couple of us have been there. We've had this beautiful sister church partnership uh, with Way of Peace Church in Albania. And one of the things that we got to see last week was a new church plant that, thanks to your giving, has helped been established in Albania. It's a village outside this little town of Luznia, has about 80 families in it, and it's predominantly Muslim. Muslim being high in identity being a Muslim, but low in practice, meaning many of the families have never even been into a mosque. And it was in this village that there was a Muslim charity that showed up a few years ago. And they said, we are going to build you a well because you need water in this village. And so they built this beautiful brick well. And they put a plaque on it and said, you know, dedicated this day. But then they never hooked up the well to any pipes. And so it's just a well sitting there empty in the middle of the village. Pastor Birdie, through literally giving from this church, was able to purchase a van drive out to this village, begin delivering food to this village. They started a school in this village. And on Easter Sunday, two weeks ago, there was about 45 people worshiping the true Jesus and listening and proclaiming his freedom and the good news of Christ. Amen? Isn't that cool? So we got to see this. We got to go to Kosovo a couple hours to the north and be in a city of 15,000 people. And there's not one known Christian. We got to just pray through the city and, and pray. Maybe groups from Calvary will eventually come here and proclaim the freedom in Jesus. Maybe you will go there. But as we were leaving Kosovo uh, on Monday of this week, I was burdened personally because I thought to myself, wow, I've gotten to see these amazing places in Albania and Montenegro and Kosovo I haven't personally shared the gospel with anyone. I haven't personally told anyone about Jesus this week. I just wish I could have done that. So we're on the plane from Pristina, Kosovo, to Istanbul, Turkey. It's about an hour and 15-minute flight. And Neil and I sit next to this guy. He's about my age, and he's like a typical Eastern European. And I say this, like, with all love because I love Eastern Europeans. But he's wearing stonewashed jeans, holes right here, gold chains, sunglasses, little hair sticking up, and... Uh, and I'm like, okay, I, I want to I talk to this guy about Jesus. So I'm sitting here in the plane next to him, and I go, so what do you do for a living? He's like, I sell uh, women's dresses. I'm like, okay, I have nowhere to go with that. <laughs> what do I do? Uh, I'm like, oh, okay. How could I? I want this guy to know Jesus. And so I had my Bible. I remembered in my backpack. And so I pulled my Bible out of the little foot area, my backpack, and I just opened to John 3.16. And I just sat there with the Bible on the tray table, like, <laughs> and within 30 seconds, he looks over and he goes, is that the Bible? I go, it is. I go, have you ever read a Bible? He said, no, I haven't. I'm Muslim. I've never read the Bible. He said, would you like to look at it right now? 
And so we went through and we looked at Genesis and we looked in the New Testament. I showed him the red letters of Jesus and said, this is, these were Jesus' words right here. And I wish I could tell you that he accepted Christ on that hour and a half flight to Istanbul and now he's planning a church. And that's not yet the case. His name's Turku. But maybe the seeds were planted in that moment. And it just made me think, wow, if we know people who are literally sitting accursed because they're following a false gospel, boy, we should have a burden and passion to help them understand the true freedom that comes in Jesus. And so one tool we want to give you today is as you walk out, strategically placed around the room in the lobby, are these 30 days of prayer. Next month is Ramadan for Muslims. I want you to grab one of these booklets and just commit to pray for Muslims to meet Jesus in a real way next month. And then speaking of Mormonism, next Sunday is LDS Youth Sunday. Wouldn't it be cool to talk to Mormons in your life after next Sunday and say, hey, what would you think of Youth Sunday? Let me tell you about Jesus, maybe a one that you haven't heard before. So anyways, with that in mind, can I just pray for us as a church that we'd have a burden to share Christ with those that are following false gospels. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, this isn't a PC moment. <laughs> it's difficult to put a stake in the ground and say one way's true and, and one way's not. And yet, God, we're just simply obeying your word. What you say here in Galatians 1 is serious, it's true, and it has implications for my life and for us. God, may we not just walk away and say, oh well, but God, may we have a burden to share your freedom with those who so badly need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, my son. I appreciate what you had to say. It's excellent. Outstanding. I'll give you a gold star when we get home. Sounds good. I'll put it on the fridge. In all seriousness, this is uh, critical that we get these things correct. And I appreciate, Matt's such a stimulant to me to remember. We've got people all around us that need this gospel. It begins with us understanding what it is. And I put it this way. If you were died and you stand before God in heaven, and he should say, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? A lot of people say, I tried to be my best. I sure hope so. Sort of the parachute guy. I kept most of the Ten Commandments. I go to church. I took communion. I was baptized. God says, no, didn't you listen to what Dave said? More importantly, what Paul said? By the gospel, you have been saved. Again, the gospel that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I don't die for my own sins. That Jesus Christ was buried and literally died for me, so I don't need to die a hopeless death. And that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead the third day so that when I die, I can be resurrected with him. My faith in his work alone is what is necessary. If you've never put your faith in the true gospel of Jesus, and you're trying to be good, try to do your own thing, carved out scripture things that you want to believe but don't believe that, come back to the true gospel, the core, begin there. And if we can help you, we would love to. I'll be over here at the prayer point. love to pray with you. Over here there'll be people. If we can answer any questions, we'd love to do so. We have communion elements up here. These elements will not save you either. 
They're simply there to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. We remember what he's done for us. It's our act of adoration and worship and thanks to him. The offering buckets are there. Putting offering on those buckets will not save you, but it's an act of adoration and worship to Jesus Christ, thanking him for how he has given to us. So let's come and worship the true Lord and God, Jesus Christ, for what he's done for us. Father, thank you as we come before you now to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you, to acknowledge you are the true God and that you are the way to the God of heaven. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father but through me. So Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for giving us that gospel message in which we can be saved. And now we worship and honor you for it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.